Hi, and welcome to the Calm Birth Conversation podcast. This is Karen McClay, and I will be having lots of wonderful conversations with experts and parents around pregnancy, birth, and parenting, with the aim to help you to make informed choices and decisions around your own journey into parenthood. This podcast is brought to you by Calm Birth, Australia's leading childbirth education program. Okay, so welcome everyone and um, I'd love to introduce you to an amazing woman, Sarah Buckley or Dr. Sarah Buckley, who is an Australian GP and what I love to to think of as as another fellow oxytocin junkie. She's author of Gentle Birth, Gentle Mothering. She's a mother herself and she's also um, been an author and co-author to many papers and also contributed to many other books as well. Um, And at the moment, she's also a PhD um, candidate at the University of Queensland looking right into oxytocin and its impact in birth um, as well as the autonomic nervous system and the the impact that interventions has on that so uh, she's doing some really amazing work in in this birth space and I'm I feel very privileged to speak to her today so welcome Sarah. Thanks so much Karen. Okay, so I think we should get into it. What I was really wanting to speak about today is oxytocin. So let's start with talking about what it actually is, Sarah. Um, What is oxytocin and why is it important generally in life? Oxytocin is a hormone and basically that means it's a substance that's produced by the body in one part of the body and it has effects in another part of the body. That's the definition of hormone. So oxytocin is actually produced in the brain, in particular cells in the middle of the brain, the hypothalamus, and it's released from the brain into the body and it's also released from the brain into the brain. So it has both of those effects. And it was first discovered 100 years ago actually by a researcher called Henry Dale. So Henry Dale, who was doing experiments with cats and he found out that administering them a pituitary extract made birth go faster so he called it oxy meaning fast tocin meaning birth so that's where it's come from originally and what we knew about it and um, synthetic versions of it were synthesized in I think it was 1947 Um, so we also have a synthetic version of oxytocin which we'll talk about I'm sure Um, but the important thing is that it makes birth go fast but what we've discovered since then it's not just a reproductive hormone it actually is, has a lot of effects um, on the body and especially on the brain. So within the brain, it spreads out quite a long way, not just as an effector of all reproductive things like birth. And by the way, it's also involved in breastfeeding, the letdown response. It's also involved in sexual activity, male and female, and mating in all mammals. It's a hormone of monogamy. Um, so lots of reproductive effects. But outside of reproduction has lots of effects because it actually – Uh, is a neuromodulator, it kind of turns up and turns down different aspects of the brain. And particularly it switches on what we call the parasympathetic nervous system and switches off or switches down the sympathetic nervous system. These are branches of what's called the autonomic nervous system. And it's kind of like the automatic nervous system, you could say. It's what keeps our heart rate regular, like our blood pressure, our blood vessels, all those kind of things, digestion. So when the the sympathetic, which is the fight or flight system, is up, um, you know, we get... We get anxiety, we get stress, we get fast heart, we get all these physiological effects like a a tiger's 
just come into the room. But on the other hand, when our parasympathetic, when the opposite system is predominant, then we have what we call relaxation and growth, calm and connection, rest and digestion, all those kind of automatic parts of the body can function, but also we feel more relaxed. It actually impacts the blood flow to our skin. We get more blood flow to our skin. We literally get warmer. So oxytocin is a warming hormone. It's a relaxing hormone. And it also, well, lots of other things, but it also switches on um, what's called social affiliative behavior. So it makes us want to be with other people. It rewards us for interacting with other people. And it's very much a, much a social hormone. And it also, <laughs> there's a very long list here, it also activates um, the reward and pleasure centers in the brain. So that's kind of why the things that we do that generate oxytocin feel so good, like making love. We literally make oxytocin the hormone of love. Sharing a meal, we actually release oxytocin. Interacting with other people, release oxytocin. And having a baby, <laughs> we release oxytocin as well. Yeah, and I found that really interesting. I read that recently about how eating and, and sharing a meal is, is a really big con- contributor of oxytocin. And that surprised me initially. And then when I thought about it, if you think about all the times that we connect, often it's over food and it's a real cultural thing across all cultures actually, isn't it, is sharing sharing food. So um, I, found that, I found that actually a really interesting point when I was looking into oxytocin recently. Um, so if that's the case with what oxytocin is generally in life, so um, it's also, I guess, record, known as our social and love hormone, as you were saying, why is it so important in birth, Sarah? Why, why do we need oxytocin in birth and how is it of benefit to both mums and babies? Well, there's two aspects of that question, Karen. One is the physical effects of oxytocin. As I mentioned, it's called oxytocin because it makes birth go fast. It's a hormone that's made in the center of the brain, the hypothalamus. It's stored in the pituitary gland, released into the bloodstream, and it travels to the uterus in in laboring women. And when it gets to the uterus, it meets what we call oxytocin receptors. So this is how a hormone works. It binds with the receptor, and it's a bit like putting a key into a lock. So we have a specific key, oxytocin, a specific receptor, oxytocin receptor so oxytocin finds the oxytocin receptors which are actually on the outside of the uterine muscle cells on the wall it binds to these receptors and it's like turning a key in a lock it sends a chemical message into the cell saying contract so basically the function of oxytocin in labor physically is to cause the rhythmic uterine contractions of labor this is some of the research we've been doing which has been interesting it's it's called a systematic review where you collate all the the research that other people have done so what we found is that when oxytocin is released during normal, natural, what we call physiological birth, in fact, we don't have very high levels of it. They're quite low. Um, but what is happening at that time is that the woman's uterus, or actually, I should say the female, because this applies to all mammals, uh, the female uterus has got uh, much more oxytocin receptors. And what that means is that the uterus is much more sensitive to even those small amounts of oxytocin that get released. And that's so just small amounts of oxytocin on the day that labor naturally starts, yeah, um, can cause the onset of labor. And then levels build up to some extent as labor progresses. Um, but what happens, and this makes it kind of tricky with oxytocin research, is it's released in very high, narrow pulses or peaks. So when we measure it or when other people measure it, because it's tricky to measure, you might measure the top of the pulse, you might measure the bottom of the pulse, you might measure it over 30 seconds, it averages out the pulses. There's lots of different ways of measuring at measuring it. And it's also broken down quickly. So that's another complication of measuring it. 
But as we understand it, it increases gradually as labour progresses. It gets to about three to four times higher at the pushing stage. And I'll talk about that a little bit later on and this the feedback cycles that make that happen. And then we get these peaks that are even higher in the hour after birth. And one of the reasons for that, obviously, is to keep contracting the mother's uterus and, and prevent postpartum hemorrhage. But the other function of it is actually the release in the brain. So remember, we talked about it's released into the body and into the brain. So it can have both these physical effects that I just described in labor and birth. But at the same time, in the brain of the laboring female, and I'm saying female because this is all mammals, it's actually switching on all those instinctive mothering behaviors that animals need to take care of their young. You know, they don't go to classes to learn how to take care of their baby mice or elephants or whatever. That has to actually happen through the processes of labor and birth so these peaks of oxytocin that are happening and causing increasing 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 contractions of labor are also at the same time switching on those instinctive mothering behaviors or the maternal circuits as we call them in the brain and part of the maternal circuits is actually what i mentioned before the pleasure and reward systems so what's happening as labor progresses the mother's getting more and more release of oxytocin in her brain as well as her body and she's getting activation of these pleasure and reward centers and basically Basically, what that means is when she meets her baby or babies for the first time, whether it's a human baby or a mouse or a, <laughs> or a piglet, she's um, she her brain is at, is is um, her reward and pleasure centers are maximally activated. So she's going to have what I call the best first impression or the best first date ever in relation to meeting her babies for the first time. So you know you could say the parts of her brain that are to do with the sensory information from her babies, the sight of the smell of them gets linked with those reward and pleasure centers. So in a sense, she's going, oh, these are my babies. They're a source of reward and pleasure to me. And that's going to begin that reward and motivation um, that every mammalian mother needs to take care of all mammalian babies because they're all born in a, in a vulnerable state. No mammalian babies can look after themselves um, straight away after birth. So it switches on that caretaking behavior. And there's no reason to think that doesn't happen in women as well. In fact, there's evidence that you know these oxytocin levels increase substantially, even 10 times times higher than that hour after birth yeah so it's, it's amazing isn't it it's quite a remarkable hormone so really in birth what it's doing is it's doing two things as you said the physical of actually um getting the uterus to contract and open and birth the baby physically but it's also also um adding all that that extra dimension of that emotional and psychological component to birth and and priming that woman to become a mother really isn't it so it's, it's showing that it's not just a birth of a, a baby but it's also a birth of a mother um, yes and oxytocin is pivotal at doing that as well yeah that's yeah. that's fantastic so what um the other thing that oxytocin really does too during labor it's got many benefits at a psychological level uh for women too doesn't it sarah like it, ha- yeah. it really helps to calm women down and um, get that parasympathetic nervous system happening, doesn't it? Yes, exactly. So all that duration of labour, however long it is, it's going to be working on the mother's brain to give that calm and connection that every like labour is intense, right? It's an yes. intense experience and we need all the help we can get. And this is we meaning all mammals, right? So, you know, all the all through that process of labour and birth. And of course, what's happening is the, you know, the more um, physical, the more strong the contractions are, the more intense pain, etc., the more oxytocin is released in the 
brain to counter that. So it's reward and pleasure centers, it's calm and connection, but it also actually has its own pain relieving qualities as well. But I'm just going to explain a little bit more about the yeah. processes of labor and how oxytocin is involved. So one of the ways I describe this, I say, you know, we've got this biological um, concept called homeostasis. So that means that all of us sitting here, you in your place, me in my place, our blood pressure's even, our heart rate's even, you know, if it goes up a little bit, we've got these processes that identify that and then bring it down. That's a negative feedback loop. So it keeps things stable, you know, like in a straight line. Mm-hmm. But labor is not a homeostatic process. Things don't stay stable in a straight line. Things accelerate. So I call it the snowball of labor. And the way things accelerate is because we don't have negative feedback loops, you know, that bring things back to normal. We have positive feedback loops that actually accelerate and accelerate and accelerate, which is why labor, like a snowball, gets so big in the end, it's virtually unstoppable. So that's kind of the process of active labor, you could say. And one of the feedback loops, there's probably many of them, but one of the feedback loops involved is what we've what's previously been identified as the Ferguson reflex at the end of labor. If you're a healthcare worker, you may recognize recognize that but 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 it actually happens all the way through labor so if you imagine a, a, a laboring female or a laboring woman in front of you what's happening is that oxytocin is getting released from her brain and going down to her uterus and causing these rhythmic contractions of labor and the sensations from those contractions like the the sensory information the, the feeling of it yeah it's intense or pain or whatever then gets fed back into her brain by a specific nerve pathway and once that information gets to her her brain it tells her brain to release more oxytocin so it releases more oxytocin goes to her uterus causes stronger contractions more intense sensations therefore more feedback more sensation more nerve sensory nerve input to her brain to release more oxytocin so you can see that that's going to rev labor up and make labor go faster and faster but the brilliant thing is that it's not just as we mentioned in the body but it's also in her brain Mm. so the more stronger the contractions are the more she gets this oxytocin release inside her brain to help her to deal to help her to calm and connect to to um, switch on those pleasure and reward centers as well and so at the end of labor when the contractions are very strong and very intense she's got that maximum oxytocin feedback that's also going to give her these powerful contractions to birth her baby as quickly and easily as possible and then she's going to have those peaks of oxytocin um, at that moment of birth and even in the hour after birth can I talk about the hour after birth now because that's all part of it yeah go for it absolutely (laughs) so what we know is that you know we get these peaks three to four times higher at the moment of birth compared Mm. to the beginning of labor but that hour after birth the peaks are even higher and this is from a study that looked at measured oxytocin levels every 15 minutes in women postpartum but also what the study did was it actually videotaped the interactions between the mother and the baby and what they found was that the babies were left alone to do the breast crawl and if you don't know what breast crawl Mm. is I suggest you google it because there's some beautiful videos of it but basically human babies like every other mammal if you put the newborn baby on the mother's body it's got all the abilities all the reflexes all the instinctive behaviors to crawl to the breast or nipple and attach itself so a human baby will do that by using the stepping movement which by the way as it goes past the uterus and steps on the uterus it helps the uterus to contract 
but also the baby will identify, will find the nipple by the smell of the nipple, which smells like amniotic fluid. And the baby will actually um, start to massage the mother's nipple. It's a bit like, you know, how little kittens massage will massage the mother's belly. Well, we have that instinct too. So that the newborn baby will find the nipple and before it attaches, it will actually massage with the hand, the mother's nipple. And what that does, according to this study, when we you, they put together the video evidence with the oxytocin levels, it actually increases the mother's oxytocin very significantly, even um, up to 10 times what it was at the moment of birth, which was even three to four times higher than it was at the start of labor. So we're getting this massive peaks of oxytocin right at the time that the mother needs it to contract her uterus and stop bleeding. But also it's switching on all those instinctive behaviors, the reward and pleasure centers, bonding to her baby, activating her social um, systems as well. So she wants to interact with her baby. Um, so it's basically, you know, providing that caretaking system um, and you could say it, it's it also saved the mother's life by by um, contracting her uterus and part of that caretaking system the other thing it does is that actually if you remember I said it's a warming hormone because it opens up the blood vessels it makes us takes the the blood from the center you know when we're when we're in fight or flight we kind of get cold hands and feet we get scared the blood goes to the center and when we're in the opposite when they're parasympathetic with oxytocin we get more flush there's more blood flow to the skin and in this hour after birth, we get even more of that as women because we actually get a vasodilation and opening up of the blood vessels on the chest wall. And of course, that's where the baby is going to be. So our chest wall literally pulses heat to the baby and our breast. And that's what keeps a newborn baby warm. And that's part of the magic that you've probably heard about of skin to skin contact after the birth, that the mother will pulse heat and keep her newborn baby warmer than wrapping the baby up, putting the baby under a heater, all of those things don't keep the baby as warm as this pulsed heat from the mother and of course that's what every other mammal does they keep their newborn baby warm without blankets or hats or heaters or any of those um, any of those things and that's kind of you could say well, I call it mother nature's superb design but that's where the baby expects to be that's where the baby's kept warm and that's where the baby can enact these um, instinctive breast core behaviors find the breast stimulate the mother's oxytocin at the same time and then self-attach and suckle. Yeah, it's quite remarkable, isn't it? How we're, the whole system is primed and set up to do that. Um, and it, it's something that we don't even have to really think about, is it? It just, it just happens for us when we allow it to happen. And, and really fueling that oxytocin environment is an incredibly important thing. So really, uh, when it comes to labour, to just coming back to that a little bit um, as well, one of the things that a lot of women are concerned about is how they're going to deal with the stress of labour and the discomfort of labor and really what what we're finding and what you're finding in your research and what we know of oxytocin is that our natural endogenous oxytocin provides us that comfort and that release and that and and helps to mitigate against the stress of birth doesn't it yeah that's exactly right that's a good way of putting it karen yep yeah, absolutely. So then I guess one of the, the big questions that we have, particularly um, in this day and age and, and within our system of birth, is the impact of inter- that intervention has on this, this very natural, normal system of, of um, women, mammals and, and babies. Um, what in your research and what have you been finding is the impact of things like cesarean sections and inductions of labor and 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 epidurals as well epidurals seem to have a quite a big effect on our own natural oxytocin system doesn't it 
Yeah, so those are all good questions and some of them we're kind of in the middle of answering because we're writing one paper and we've got another paper coming up. Actually yeah. looking at, just I described before, we did a systematic review of oxytocin levels and normal birth, physiological birth, and now we're doing that same thing, looking at what all the studies show of oxytocin levels in, um, in birth with intervention. So I can talk a little bit about that um, as far as we know from the studies that have been done. And <clears throat> basically what you said before, you know, the more we can leave birth alone and let it unfold, the more the kinder we're going to be to the oxytocin system, basically. So when we bring in an intervention, it's going to be something that wouldn't naturally happen. And the way I describe it, I say that, you know, if for every, there's a kind of a continuum of, what we call physiological or natural birth, if you like. So on, on the one hand, we have, you know, a mother and baby who basically don't have or have very minimal intervention. On the other hand, on the other end of this line, you could say, we have a mother and baby um, with a pre-labor cesarean where there's no labor at all. And there's not, not only no labor, but also mother and baby haven't gone into labor naturally. And I can talk a bit about that if you, if we get to that. Um, so, you know, that's a, it's a continuum and every mother and baby is somewhere on that continuum. And if they're not at the end of full physiology, then there's a hormonal gap. Something didn't happen that should have happened or something happened that shouldn't have happened. And basically, when you get a hormonal gap, often we need to then do something else to fill in the hormonal gap. I'll give you some examples in a minute. But um, so the, the less hormonal gaps we have, the better. But when there is a hormonal gap, we need to recognize it and do what we can to fill it in. So all of these interventions create a hormonal gap to some extent, um, the way that I see it. And I'll start talking about a pre-labor cesarean because that's the biggest hormonal gap. Mm. So there's been no labor. So mother and baby technically aren't ready to be born or to give birth because they haven't gone into labor. You know, that's really the that's the bottom line if you haven't gone into labor you're not ready for it because there's a whole lot of very complex um, and intricate interactions that happen between mother and baby to ensure that both are optimally prepared for labor and birth at the same time because of course the baby has to make this incredible transition to life outside the womb be able to breathe first up be able to digest and do all, uh, all the other functions that the mother's body and the placenta has been helping the baby with and on the other hand the mother as I describe it you know she's had nine months to become fully pregnant and within a few minutes she's not pregnant anymore so she has to have the ability to make those transitions for herself and then the next level of course is transition to breastfeeding transition to taking care of her babies and we talked about some of the ways that oxytocin helps with that by you know um, contracting the uterus after birth switching on the instinctive mothering behaviors keeping her baby warm etc etc so um so for, for a pre-labor cesarean mother and baby, they've missed the labor and birth, but they've also missed all the preparations that lead to that. And we, to be honest, we don't know the full consequences of that. For one thing, we don't actually even know what causes the physiological onset of labor. And that's quite extraordinary if you think how much research must have gone into that to try and figure that out. And we don't actually know what it is that causes labor to begin now and not tomorrow or not the next day in any particular mother and baby. So we can't predict that. But we do know that it's a complex interaction action that the mother has to be ready the baby has to be ready at the same time it involves a lot of hormones I've written the paper about that I can send you the link to that um, mm -hmm. so uh, well, also great. actually actually in my um, my book uh, my, my sorry my report hormonal physiology of childbearing I'll send you the link to that as well but that has a whole chapter on the physiological onset of labor so it's quite a hormonal gap for mothers and babies with the pre-labor cesarean and especially they're just they're not getting those peaks of oxytocin they're not getting the kind of ready we talked about 
oxytocin receptors, how the numbers increase in the mother's uterus in the lead up to labor. So she's maximally sensitive at the start of labor. Well, that's a gradual process, right? So mm-hmm. if you're not at that full readiness, then you don't have that full number of oxytocin receptors, which obviously doesn't matter for giving birth, but it can matter for afterwards. It can make you more susceptible to postpartum hemorrhage afterwards as well. And the baby also hasn't had the preparation, the pre-labor preparations, and then the in-labor processes. And for the baby, one of the in-labor processes that probably actually also involves oxytocin, though it's not so well researched, is um, this thing called the catecholamine surge, where the, the stresses of labor actually are positive stresses for the baby. They call it the stress of being born, and it switches on a whole lot of adaptive capacities for the baby it clears the lungs of fluid it um, opens up the airways it switches the baby's metabolism to be able to produce their own metabolic fuels because as I said they're getting unplugged from the hotel de womb and they're going to have to produce their own metabolic fuels Um, so this catecholamine surge is not present for a pre-labor cesarean and it really explains lots of the problems that pre-labor cesarean babies have like they don't um, they tend to be colder because their own heat producing systems haven't been turned on. They tend to be low in blood sugar, hypoglycemic, because their own metabolic systems haven't had this transition to um, life outside the womb, and they tend to have problems breathing. So big hormonal gaps there. And, um, you know, I've mentioned the catecholamine surge, but probably for the baby, the oxytocin system is involved as well, because what we're discovering or what we're, some preliminary findings is that, you know, the baby who's been through labor and birth also has an oxytocin peak um, after birth. In fact, higher levels than the mother, several fold higher in some studies, but the pre-labor cesarean baby doesn't have that. So there's a, there's a hormonal gap there for the, or several hormonal gaps for the baby as well. So of course, if we have an in-labor cesarean, sometimes called an emergency cesarean, though it's not necessarily an emergency, um, you know, the baby has, the, both of them have some of those gaps because they didn't get to the end of labor and they may also have other gaps if they were induced and therefore not at that peak of readiness that we've talked about so that the pre-labor cesarean biggest hormonal gap in labor cesarean you know less of a hormonal gap especially if the mother and baby have gone into labor spontaneously which means that they are both ready they both have that readiness yeah. I'm talking about full-term labor, by the way, like preterm labor is a whole nother category that I'm not covering here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's yeah, right. yeah, we'll yeah. That another time. Yeah, but, yeah. So, Sarah, while we're, we're sticking with with those uh, with cesareans at the moment, we know that for some women, a, a, an elective or a pre-labor cesarean is going to be the safest birth for her and her baby. What then can that mother and baby pair do to to really make up? for that um, that decrease or that hormonal gap that you speak about? What can mm. they do? Yeah, good question. So absolutely all of the interventions that we're talking about can be helpful and even life-saving for some mothers and babies. Mm. So what we want to do is identify the hormonal gap and then do what we can to fill it. And we talked about, we talked a little bit about the hour after birth and the skin to skin because skin to skin contact at any time actually releases oxytocin. So Mm -hmm. skin to skin between mother and baby releases oxytocin. And I also mentioned that oxytocin is a hormone of breastfeeding, the letdown reflex releases oxytocin. So basically the way to 
fill in those hormonal gaps and all of the situations we're going to talk about is skin to skin and breastfeeding. So the earlier you can get mother and baby skin to skin contact after a cesarean and um, allow the baby opportunities to breastfeed, the better it's going to be. And, you know, there will be that hormonal gap. So the baby, you know, often a prelabor cesarean baby is born a bit sleepy. You know, they haven't had the waking up of that catecholamine surge. By the way, catecholamines is adrenaline and noradrenaline. So it's a big surge of adrenaline that wakes the baby up mm. on every level. So the prelabor cesarean babies tend to be a bit drowsy. I always say prelabor cesarean for the baby. It's a bit like, you know, you're asleep in the middle of the night and it's cold out there and you're huddled under your quilt and it's snugly and warm and someone comes in and they shine this bright light in your eyes and like tear off the quilt and you're you're just not ready to wake up and it's and it's bright and it's cold and that's basically what it is for a prelabor cesarean so no wonder they're often a bit shocked right um, so yeah so, yeah. so the, you know the way to soothe that is skin to skin contact is helping the baby to get back into their calm and connection oxytocin system and I'll just share an anecdote about that so um, this is a, a, actually a birth story I read in a birth magazine and it was a mother who'd had two previous um, natural births and then this birth she had to have a pre-labor cesarean and she said when I got my baby back my baby felt different and basically she's identifying that hormonal gap for the baby she was probably different too in fact she was different but there was a hormonal gap for the baby and she said my instinct was to have my baby skin to skin and she said after three days of skin to skin my baby felt the same mm. so what that's identifying is the hormonal gap what she did to fill in the hormonal gap but the other thing it's identifying is that you know at, the, at that onset, the physiological onset of labor, it, you know, I call it a window of opportunity. Everything's ready. The mother's body's ready. There's oxytocin receptors. The baby's body is ready. The baby actually has catecholamine receptors. There's a whole lot of systems, too complex for us to even understand right now, are all mm. ready to go at that moment so that the mother and baby can make a safe, have a safe labor, make a safe transition to postpartum and life outside the womb. But if we miss that window of opportunity, you know, my mother could have had like my last, my last labor was an hour and a half, right? And my body made all those transitions. My baby made all those transitions, you know, in that brief yeah. time because it was that window of opportunity. We were both ready, right? Yeah. So it's not about the length of labor. It's about the full readiness. So um, a pre-labor cesarean or, or anything that is um, before the mother and baby's full readiness, you know, there's a, there's a gap there. You know, there's a, mm. there's a, the window of opportunity is missing. So instead of having an effective and efficient use of all those hormones, it's not going to be so effective and efficient. So instead of like, you know, one and a half hours of labor, that mother and baby needed three hours of skin to skin. So it's going to take much bigger effort to fill in that hormonal gap so that's an important take-home message as well yeah and and that's something that that we've known for a while now too Sarah isn't that importance of that skin to skin like it to me it, it's the fix-all to everything um with with mothers and babies and and a lot of our um hospitals and institutions now thank goodness are moving to skin to skin immediately at birth with cesareans which I think has made an enormous difference um physically but also uh, emotionally and on that level of bonding for mothers and babies too and that transition yeah that's yeah. beautiful there's actually a good um there's some good youtube videos and there's also mm. a, a paper called the natural cesarean it's quite an yeah. old paper but it really details you know if you want to take one to your obstetrician and say this is you know this has been done safely it basically documents all of that including delayed cord clamping as well yeah. so there's ways of doing it as you say and it's fantastic that hospitals are doing that to really reduce that the hormonal gap for mothers and babies with um, with cesareans 
That's right. And there's also that emotional gap too, isn't there, Sarah? Like, you know, that, you know, I think women, it's really important for women who are having cesarean births to, to associate the fact that they are still birthing because they, they don't feel it. So, and what we've found is certainly by, by putting that baby skin to skin that, and even for some women watching that baby emerging from her, from their body is, is really making that connecting link for them. Mm, Yeah. Beautiful, yeah. Too, which is good, which helps that oxytocin as well. Yes, yes, yes. Well, I've got, um, to, I've got to say something, though, that in fact, and this is a hormonal gap as well, when a woman has a pre-labor cesarean and she's skin to skin with her baby, she actually doesn't release much oxytocin in the beginning. Probably later on she does, but her system hasn't had because what we actually think happens is, remember I said during labor and birth we get these peaks of oxytocin in the brain as well. We think that somehow those peaks of oxytocin in the brain switch on skin sensitivity so a woman who's been through a natural labor and birth has very sensitive skin i mentioned that 10 times increased oxytocin release with the the baby's hand massage that happens that happened in the study in a woman who had no intervention but when women have a pre-labor cesarean they don't release the oxytocin in the same way in fact not very much at all so i'm not saying you know don't have skin to skin but i'm saying be patient you know you're not going to get that whole it's good there's there's quite a big hormonal gap there that you're filling yeah so as as the as the story i shared three days of skin to skin could yeah. probably switch on all of those things yeah or as yeah. much as you could possibly get <laughs> yeah that's right which is important and again you then allude you also alluded to um you know cesareans that have that are unplanned or emergency uh cesareans and for those that mother and baby they have had particularly for as you said the spontaneous labor they have had um they were both ready for this and and are you finding in the research or is there anything in the research that that is showing that there is a difference in the sensitivity to mothers and babies post-birth with skin to skin that have had some labor have you yeah look we don't have i haven't we don't have any evidence about that at the moment there is some evidence that it's better for the baby's breathing Um, there's some evidence that the babies do better because they've had that catecholamine release during labor that's helped to clear the lungs and all the other ways that it helps the baby to to make that breathing transition so that's true but there's not a lot of research on your maternal sensitivity on attachment on um you know skin to skin contact at this point i think we're beginning to to do some more of that that's one of my or two of my PhD studies actually yeah. so looking at those kind of things as well so hopefully I'll be able to answer your question a bit better later on yeah okay which would be really great and really fascinating I mean there's so many questions that we have about oxytocin isn't it like we're really only just starting to understand birth actually as a whole um as we we're diving into to it so there's there's so much for us to learn um but um Sarah what about inductions because this is this is a a big one in the sense that we are that synthetic or artificial oxytocin is is replacing the the natural oxytocin of women in birth or or is it actually replacing it or is it supplementing it how what what's your research actually showing well, those are really good questions and it's hard, you know, we don't have the evidence to answer those 100% or kind of authoritatively, you could say, but mm. we have to go back to that model that I described of the oxytocin feedback loop. So remember, we talked about homeostasis and negative feedback, and then we talked about birth and positive feedback. 
Well, basically in birth, oxytocin is on a positive feedback loop. Yeah. yeah. So what that means, because, you know, I first started doing this research, I thought, well, if you give the mother synthetic oxytocin, she's not going to make so much of her own. But that's yeah. not true. That's right. not true because it's not a negative feedback loop in labor. It's a positive feedback loop. So in fact, okay. in some studies, what we've found is that the, the, when a woman gets additional synthetic oxytocin, and these were low doses of it in these studies, they can actually have more oxytocin effects. And these, these studies actually measured, and I haven't even mentioned this, but these studies measured the personality changes that happen in women after going through labor and birth. So women become less tense, more sociable, um, uh, less anxious. You know, these are all things that are going to help, help them to look after their babies, right? But we can measure it as, as a difference in personality after going through a natural labor and birth. And, you know, as you could predict, when women have a pre-labor cesarean, they don't get those personality changes because they haven't had those peaks of oxytocin in the brain during labor and birth. Mm. So what they found is that when women had had synthetic oxytocin, they actually had a little bit more of those effects. So maybe there's some way that their oxytocin has increased the feedback loop, made labor contraction stronger, increased the feedback, made more brain oxytocin. So it's not a, it's not a negative feedback loop and, and some evidence shows that it may accentuate the positive feedback loop. And in fact, I also mentioned that um, after a cesarean, women don't release oxytocin, but other studies where the women were given high amounts of synthetic oxytocin after um, after the cesarean or straight after the cesarean, they did release oxytocin during skin-to-skin breastfeeding, which kind of contributes to that model that we have where you know, synthetic where oxytocin um, helps the mother to release her own oxytocin during skin-to-skin contact. So there's those findings, but I'm not saying synthetic oxytocin is a good thing at all. Um, for two, well, for several reasons. One is that we don't know the impact on breastfeeding, and there are some studies showing that it yeah. may have a negative impact on breastfeeding. But the other concern we have about synthetic oxytocin, and just going back to some of the things we said initially, is that um, we think that labor is designed to be a parasympathetic event. It's designed to have these high levels of oxytocin in the brain, which help to keep the mother calm and connected and switch on all these reward centers and, and all of that. So it's designed to be a, a parasympathetic event. It's, 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 it's stressful, but in fact, we call that eustress, E-U-S-T-R-E-S-S. It's healthy stress that's, that's necessary for um for the processes to go smoothly or normally and i'll come back to that a bit later on about you stress and love but anyway so that it's a you stress for the for the mother and that helps her to switch on all those things from the baby and it's a you stress for the baby as well the catecholamine surge etc but what we think is that there's kind of a, a limit to how much stress the mother should be exposed to in labor and if that tips over the edge it could go from the parasympathetic into the sympathetic. This is a theory, right? We don't have yeah. evidence for this at the moment. Yeah. So, but we think that excessive, if, if there's high um, uh, doses of synthetic oxytocin causing strong contractions, that's actually going to set off the mother's stress system and not just the pain of it, even if she has um, you know, effective pain relief like epidurals, it's her body is still in stress. It's like if you were running a marathon and someone gave you a painkiller, it wouldn't actually stop the stress of the body. It wouldn't mm. stop the pain, you know what I mean? So, so we think that that may happen and that, that high levels of stress could be detrimental to the transition to motherhood, which is all designed to be parasympathetic. That's our working model, but you'll have to watch this space to see what we can, we can find out about that. But that, that makes sense from, you know, what we know about other animals, et cetera, et cetera. So, yeah. you know, so, so, so synthetic oxytocin in itself 
um, you know, may in low doses may not be harmful, but high doses may be harmful. That's that's what we're hypothesizing, and you can't take this for gospel because we don't really have. Uh, it's it, you know that's that's what's shocking really in this conversation, Karen, is it's so widely used. Induction is so common. There's just a study out today by Hannah Dale and D A H L E N showing yeah. how common induction is. You know, and it's done willy nilly, like you know, we'll just induce this woman because her baby might be getting too big, or because it's convenient, socially convenient for the woman, or for the for the for the caregivers, for the hospital structure to have daytime births. I mean, there's so many motivations to induce labour, but we don't actually know what the what the downhill effects are for mothers and babies. You know, does does it does it is it harmful? Does it harm breastfeeding? You know, mm. there was also there was also some studies showing that. Um, synthetic oxytocin given in labor reduced the amount of oxytocin the mother released during breastfeeding two days after the birth but what's difficult is as far as the research i'm kind of teasing all this out is because induction tends to have co-interventions like you know you we're talking about um oxytocin and having a natural pain relieving effect well the trouble is when you have high levels of synthetic oxytocin and you get those strong contractions that's going to overwhelm your natural pain relieving mechanisms in your brain and you're probably going to need some kind of pain relief and you're often going to be given an epidural so you have this co-intervention of synthetic oxytocin and epidural and on the other hand if you have an epidural we'll talk about this in a minute i'm sure you're going to ask me this question it it reduces your oxytocin it causes a hormonal gap and then you need synthetic oxytocin to fill in the hormonal gap so synthetic oxytocin and epidurals are very very common co-interventions and it's hard to tease out what's this and what's that in, in, in terms of the research yeah and sarah why is it that inductions of labor like uh, um that why are they why are they stronger is it is it the fact that the synthetic oxytocin doesn't cross the blood-brain barrier, is it the fact that it's a continuous dose as opposed to those pulsatile doses? Uh, what is it actually that, that makes it a stronger labour for women? Well, those, those two things are true. I guess there's several things we could say. I mean, first of all, if a woman's being induced, she's not ready for labour by definition, That's right? right. Yeah. We don't actually know. As I, as I mentioned, we don't know what causes the physiological onset of labour in women. We do know in some species. Um, we don't know what causes it. And we also don't know for an individual woman, we can't say, you're going to have your baby tomorrow, you're going to have your baby mm-hmm. next week. I mean, we can't predict that right. No, and there's also yeah. this wide range of, of labour onset for women, like 37 to 42 weeks is normal, whereas in a rat, for example, all rats give birth on day 22 or maybe the end of 21 so it's very fixed but it's not like that in women so when a woman's induced we don't know whether she would have gone into labor tomorrow whether she's really you know two or even three weeks away from her own physiological labor onset so basically what i'm saying is we don't know what the hormonal gap is is, when we induce a woman you know so so. and and women and caregivers may have had this experience like some women they, they 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 they're induced and you just do something small and everything starts and someone you can pour bucket loads of synthetic oxytocin, for example, and nothing happens because they're not ready. They don't have mm-hmm. that optimal number or even nowhere near the optimal number of oxytocin receptors. And it's not just the receptors, by the way. There's a whole, again, I'll refer you to the chapter in the report. There's a whole lot of physiological processes happening in parallel to make the mother ready and the baby ready. So it's not just the receptors, but I'll talk about mm-hmm. that because that's that's something we've identified. So, yeah, there's a big gap in, in how far away they are from labor and we don't know well we don't know if it's a big gap or a small gap and those women who sort of you know you just a little bit of synthetic oxytocin everything starts they probably would have gone into labor themselves tomorrow so that's a problem that we don't we can't predict that therefore we don't really know what we're doing when, when we induce labor to some extent and also we don't know what else 
is, you know, we can say oxytocin receptors, are, are, you know, are, are going to be deficient. There's a hormonal gap there. But what other hormonal gaps might there be? You know, we talked about the reward and pleasure centers. I'm mm. sure there's a whole lot of brain preparations that happen in the lead up to labor. In fact, in one species, the prairie vole, you know, they're not, this is a, a, it's actually a small a mammal from North America that has quite an extensive oxytocin system. So there's lots of oxytocin research in prairie voles. Um, but basically, the prairie vole um, female through pregnancy is quite aggressive. If you present her with a, a pup, a baby, she's, she'll quite be quite aggressive to that. And that only changes a few hours before she goes into labor. So there's obviously something happening in her brain that's switching on those reward and pleasure centers, you know, maternal circuits, et cetera, just, just before the onset of labor. And we don't have that kind of research in, in humans. Um, but, you know, you have to think that there's some kind of brain preparation happening as happens with the uterus, you know, to make mm. sure that it's all going to flow. Because, you know, we're talking about we're talking about survival here. We're talking about what's going to make sure that mother and baby survive the birth. And these processes have been refined over, as I call it, 63 million years of mammalian evolution. You know, it's worked for all that time. And there's been no other alternative until very recently, you know, in evolutionary terms. So, you know, yep. it's mother nature's best shot to make sure that mother and baby bond. So there's going to has to be these preparations in the brain beforehand. As I said, hard to hard to um, hard to research in women. We can't sample women's brains, right? Yeah, so you know, basically, we don't know what other hormonal gaps there might be with induction. Yeah, and I guess too, it's also understanding too. It's not just the birth itself that that the safety mechanisms are in place for, but they're setting up the safety mechanisms for post birth as well. Because yeah. number one, we need we need women to be safe after birth. We you know with birthing the placenta and and coming back to their their pre pregnancy state, but we've we we do birth very immature babies who are totally and utterly reliant on the mother attaching to them to to want to care for them so um so that safety mechanism continues on and we need to to really foster that so sarah with the impact with the baby then and i guess this is something that that's interest interests me is that we know that mother and baby are very much one system um and when you've got that incredible placenta which is is sort of the filter between the two and we know some things cross the placenta and other things don't what about oxytocin? Does that go across the placenta, our natural endogenous one, and, and also the, um, the, the uh, artificial synthetic oxytocin? Does that go across to the baby as well, like, and impact the baby? Well, those are really good questions, um, Karen, and these are um, like new understandings I personally have had through doing this research for my PhD and kind of supersede things that I've written before because, you know, I was convinced that oxytocin did cross the placenta and could mm. cause harm to babies and there's a whole stream of thought that, you know, does the current epidemic of, or, you know, increased incidence of autism relate to synthetic oxytocin at birth? And I asked that question myself. But yeah. the research that I've done, particularly this paper I'm working on at the moment, really says, no, that's not the case. Because okay. for one thing, oxytocin is a peptide molecule. It's quite a small molecule. It has nine amino acids. And it's not, it's, it, they're not the kind of molecules that pass membranes. So biological membranes are fat. They're basically made of fat and cholesterol and things like that. So to cross a biological membrane, you need a chemical that's fat-soluble, that's lipophilic. You know, and things like painkillers are because they have to get into the brain, you know, um, so there's lots of, and, and some of the things we produce in the body are designed to cross membranes, but oxytocin is not a molecule that crosses membranes. So even though we make it in the body and it's released 
by specific portal circulation into the bloodstream, it doesn't actually go from the blood back to the brain. And that's what you mentioned before, the blood-brain barrier, which basically protects our brains because, you know, we, our brains are important. What goes, What is happening in our brain is critical to our functioning. So we don't want any old random thing in the bloodstream getting into the brain. We need to be able to control it so we have this blood-brain barrier. So basically the blood-brain barrier stops oxytocin from entering. About one thousandth of what's in the bloodstream enters into the brain. And that's not a high enough level to have impact on the brain. So yep. basically, my, what, what we're showing is that synthetic oxytocin doesn't cross into the brain for the mother. Um, we can come back to that if you've got any questions around that. But also the, the placenta is a biological membrane. So it's very, very unlikely to cross the placenta in significant amounts, about one thousandth of it would. So if you gave the mother extremely high doses, yes, it could get to the baby, but those extremely high doses would actually kill the baby because they cause the uterus to contract too strongly. So, you know, we're quite limited. We talked about oxytocin receptors and the increase in labor, but even in pregnancy, we have more oxytocin receptors. So you can't, basically you can't give a pregnant or laboring mother very much synthetic oxytocin because it would be harmful. Yeah, it would cause strong contractions that would endanger the life of her baby. So the amount of oxytocin that women get in labor is quite modest. Remember I said physiological labor, you know, low, low doses that we produce any rate and the amount we can give of synthetic oxytocin, which we do give, you know, more than the woman would produce because her body's not so sensitive because she doesn't have the receptors. So we've got to give more of it. We talked about that a little bit, but still it's not, it's not a thousand times higher. It's like four through two to four times higher is what our research is showing. That's the maximum that we could give. So really that's not enough. It's not a thousand times higher to cross the mother's blood brain barrier to cross the placenta to get into the baby's brain. And anyway, as I mentioned, what we're finding is that the baby's actually producing their own oxytocin. Um, and yeah. the levels in most of the studies that we looked at are several fold higher than the mother. So, you know, the baby is doing its own calm and connection. And we think it's probably mm -hmm. the squeezing in labor. You know, the baby's getting all this massage, you know, this skin yeah. sensory, sensory contact. And also um, to kind of um, throw another idea in, you know, oxytocin is actually released during stress because it's yes. a hormone that helps us to get us out of stress. So the stress of labor and the squeezing of the baby's body you know, helps the baby to release oxytocin and labor. And then the baby comes out with high levels and it's ready to interact with the mother and it's calm and connected. And, you know, those oxytocin levels counteract that stress of labor. So the baby comes out with a kind of catecholamine surge, alert, bright-eyed, you know, the pictures we see of newborn babies with the bright eyes and they're kind of just really present. And yeah. then, you know, over the hour, so after the birth, the baby kind of relaxes and settles down and gets into this calm and connection, oxytocin state, and is ready to interact and suckle. So those those peaks of oxytocin for the baby um, that happen through labor and birth and that are present at birth um, also help the baby to adapt to life outside the womb. So in summary, no, we don't think it crosses the placenta. We don't think that high levels, even high doses of synthetic oxytocin in labor could cause problems for the baby. And just lastly, there's an Australian study actually that specifically drilled down into this. It was a long-term study done in Western Australia and it's a, it's a long-term study. So they followed the children up to age 20 and every few years they did a developmental assessment, including um, brain function, brain development. So they could pick up, was there any traits of autism in these children over the years? And they also went back to the hospital records and figured out how much 
synthetic oxytocin than mothers were given during labour. Um, so and what they found was there was no relation to that. There was no relation between the amount of synthetic oxytocin given in labour and autism. And for all the reasons, the kind of biological reasons I've just described, it's kind of impossible really for that much oxytocin to A, cross the placenta and B, get into the baby's brain and the baby's producing at any rate. So it kind of, this research really um, count, contradicts any of those kind of theories that are out there. Yeah, that, and that's really interesting, isn't it? Um, because I think, yeah, for a long time we kind of just assumed that whatever was going around the mother's baby goes into the baby. In sorry, going around the mother's body goes into the baby's body. But um, they're certainly showing signs now. There's there's things that 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 placenta does protect against. There's other things that absolutely do cross, but. Mm, that mm. There's that um, beautiful placenta also has a barrier for what it it knows and perceives to not be so great for baby uh, as well. So in that case, Sarah, what what is the implication then of induction for babies? Because we do know that they do find them a a stronger labour and it's purely that. Is it just the extra stress of the stronger, closer together longer contractions that are that are, are the negative impact on babies for late for inductions is is that what you've found well it's really it's really what we um the, the sense we make of the research because you know a lot of these things aren't directly researched and that's really mm-hmm. a problem when somebody and women are getting induced right we don't even know what the impact is on breastfeeding it's quite no. you know like if this was a if this wasn't you know women in reproduction you have the sense that it might be better researched you know this this very common intervention so yeah i mean basically the problem is we're mammals and we're placental yeah. mammals we're not marsupials and every placental mammal you know it has to come out through the contractions of labor and every contraction is going to squeeze the placenta and as it squeezes the placenta it's going to reduce the baby's blood and oxygen supplies like that's inevitable that's placental mammal physiology there's no way around that you know until we, we get cesareans of course but you know that's the way that every mammalian baby comes out so there is inevitably hypoxia low oxygen levels for the baby in labor but you can imagine we've got 63 million years of mammalian evolution that the mammalian baby has found a ways around this and some of the ways around this is to protect the baby's brain in particular and oxytocin what we're finding actually has neuroprotective effects it's antioxidant it stops cellular damage Um, so that, that oxytocin for the baby helps We've also got the catecholamine surge I mentioned that actually diverts the blood supply inside the baby during labor so that the brain and the heart are always getting good oxygen and good blood and oxygen supply. Um, there's other mechanisms as well that make sure that baby's brain's protected in labor. So you know, there are these intrinsic, you know, say neuroprotective mechanisms for mammalian babies. But of course, that is um, in relation to physiological labor and birth and what usually happens. Yeah, so you physiological labor and birth, you get these you know um moderate contractions at the beginning labor gets stronger and stronger much more intense at the end when actually by that time the babies really developed all their um uh, protective mechanisms especially the catecholamine surge so the kind of levels that the baby gets to of adrenaline and noradrenaline at the end of labor would give an adult a stroke you know yeah. actually very very high levels but they protect the baby protect the baby's brain protect the baby's metabolism prepare the baby for life outside the womb so there's all these intrinsic mechanisms that support the mother and support the baby and of course the mother as we talked about the stronger the labor contractions as labor progresses there's positive feedback loop she's getting more brain oxytocin to deal with the stress of labor 
labor. So one of the problems with induction is that often labor suddenly starts and it's very intense from the very start of labor. And the body of mother and the body of baby haven't had time to prepare themselves for that. So it's the pain is more intense for the mother. The contractions are more intense for the baby. The baby can get critically low in oxygen. And we detect that through the fetal heart rate monitor. That's how we might know that the baby's in danger from that. And I say to women, if you're offered an intervention with a fetal heart rate monitoring, you know there's a risk to your baby. And mm. induction of labor, you know, with synthetic oxytocin in particular is, is a risk. So, you know, there is that, that risk to the baby. And as you say, the contractions of synthetic oxytocin are different to natural contractions. So natural contractions start out, you know, um, mild and frequent become stronger and closer together as labor progresses. But the contractions of synthetic oxytocin are longer, stronger and closer together than the body would naturally produce at that stage of labor. So you could say it overwhelms the mother's pain, natural pain relieving system. It can overwhelm the baby's natural protection from hypoxia. So the baby needs monitoring. The baby could have, you know, low oxygen levels and bad heart rate and you need to turn it down or even at the most extreme, you need um, a cesarean to get the baby out abruptly because it's impacted the baby that much. So all of those things can impact the baby. Um, as you mentioned, also another difference and probably what's contributing to these long, strong, close together contractions is that when oxytocin is released in the brain during physiological labor, it's released in pulses. So we get, I mentioned this big pulse and then we get a drop so that the uterus actually has time to relax and replenish. The baby has time to replenish the blood supply between contractions. But when we get this constant, you know, synthetic oxytocin is given in a constant dose, not in pulses, um, we, then that, that, that the, the body doesn't get the same rest in between. And in fact, the, the uterine muscle builds up more lactic acid. Um, you know, I mentioned the analogy of marathon runners. You know, if you run far enough, your muscles get sore at that time or the next day because there's not enough blood flow and oxygen to clear all of the metabolic breakdown products and you build up lactic acid and that causes a yeah. bit of you know cramping and pain and stuff and the same thing happens in the mother's uterus you get a contraction you get the build up lactic acid to some extent and then between contractions that gets cleared out but when you have these long strong close together contractions you, that you're not getting that rhythm of labor and in fact what we actually think and this is in our upcoming paper is that the that lactic acid actually forms a cycle during labor. So you get this contraction, the buildup of lactic acid, and the lactic acid actually inhibits the next contraction. So you get a gap in between as well. And then that maybe actually more um, uh, contributes to the pulsatile, to the rhythmic contractions than actually the oxytocin pulses. <laughs> this is the oxytocin okay. adv advanced, but I'm just putting it in there because it's interesting. It so, you know, it's really fascinating. Yeah. Yes. So basically, you know, that, that, that synthetic oxytocin overwhelms all those protective mechanisms. So you get longer, stronger, closer con together contractions. You get the pain for the mother. You get the likely co-intervention of some kind of pain relief, likely an epidural, which we can talk about as well. And then yeah. the baby is also getting these stronger contractions. The baby's getting more hypoxia. I mean, there's more adverse effects for the baby. If you read that paper that Hannah Darling put out today, the baby's more likely to be in intensive care or to need resuscitation at birth because you know, we've, we've stretched the baby's tolerance to low oxygen levels to the limit and some babies are okay and some babies are not. So there's all those risks for the babies as well. And then could those kind of effects then feed into difficulties with breastfeeding, for example, that has been found in some studies, you know, could, be, could it be on that kind of level that's, that's impacting um, the baby after the birth as well? Yeah, it's it's interesting, isn't it? As you as you keep saying, you know, we we use synthetic oxytocin so freely um, in this birth space without 
without the research to understand um, the benefits and risks of it. Like we know the benefits, it gets uteruses contracting and helps to bring babies on when they need to be brought on earlier than normal, but we just don't know what the short and long-term impact is of them because no one, everyone, the, the, research of of oxytocin has been more about its benefit short-term benefits than it's as long-term short and long-term risks really would you agree with me with that yeah well i think there's two things there that you're highlighting karen one is even the name oxytocin because when we call pitocin or syntocin and we call it oxytocin we're kind of saying it's the same as the natural hormone and that is true biologically like the molecule is the same but it's actually it's, it acts differently in the body because it's not mm. the one we naturally make. It's not, as you say, endogenous, that word for natural. It's exogenous. It's coming from the outside, which is why I always say synthetic oxytocin, um, yeah. you know, to, to differentiate those things. So it does work differently. So we kind of sometimes I think we, we're a bit, you know, um, uh, casual about about oxytocin mm-hmm. synthetic oxytocin alive because we think it's a natural hormone it's not going to cause harm um we've been using it for years um so you know and, and in fact in the us they recently or 10 years ago added it to uh, this small list of medications that require special safeguards because they recognize mm. the extra risks of it and at that time um i think 60 percent of of litigation involved allegations of synthetic oxytocin misuse so you know yeah. even though it's a natural hormone in inverted commas it can have all these unnatural effects because of the way that we use it so i think that i think another thing is you know we've got all this research happening outside on oxytocin happening outside of reproduction and we haven't actually put it into reproduction and i think the third thing is that we actually haven't been interested in long-term effects of of childbirth you know i did a mm. I, I do some lectures on this and, and in 2012 someone did one of those i talked about systematic reviews looking at what do we know about the long-term impacts of birth and they'd found like t- at that point about 10 studies that followed up children after age five from birth so we haven't mm. actually looked at that and we've kind of you know it's it's, it's our thinking it's our medical specialization we kind of put birth over there in the hospital with the obstetricians and then we put parenting over there with the psychologists and you know public health nurses maybe and then we put breastfeeding over with the lactation consultants and we don't kind of join up the dots and therefore you know most you know most midwifery care or maternity care is episodic people don't see the long-term impacts of that so we've had to kind of wake up to even think that there could be long-term impacts from that but thankfully since that 2012 study there's a lot more research about it and you know this is one of the good things about the whole microbiome you know the the Mm. discovery that maybe born by cesarean don't have all those healthy um uh, friendly um bacteria from the mother's vagina and gut that that a naturally born baby has so we've started to think about birth and longer term impacts in the same sentence but we haven't really thought about that from the kinds of interventions that we're talking about here yeah and again i i guess it's really important sarah to to put that caveat on this conversation to say that we very much acknowledge that there are some mothers and babies there where cesarean sections and inductions of labor are going to be the best and safest birth for that baby and that mother it's it's about understanding the implications of it and as you said those hormonal gaps what we can do to close those gaps as much as possible and to mitigate and lessen the the negative impact on the mother and baby 
uh, holistically uh, of these interventions um, and at the same time reducing all the unnecessary use of it because we are starting to realise that I guess in some ways we're creating a little bit more harm than good in overusing all of these interventions as well. That's right. And, you know, you just need to look at the, the figures. I mean, our induction rate, what is it? I think like 40% for primaparous women. Like you don't yeah. quote me on that. I'll, I'll send you the start. That's the Australian Mothers and Babies uh, HW study, um, you know, data that they yeah. collect. But, I mean, the rates of caesareans, I mean, it's more than one in three women at the moment. You know, the rates of induction are enormous. We haven't talked about epidurals. Those rates are going no. up as well. And really, you know, most women want and can have a normal physiological birth given yeah. the right circumstances. And, you know, for me, just a plug here, the right circumstances is midwifery care and especially one-on-one -on -one midwifery care, having your own yeah. midwife. It reduces all of those risks. That actually reduces stress in pregnancy. It reduces the impacts of stress. It, like there's so many benefits, like, you know, it reduces preterm birth, all of the things we're talking about. And it's kind of, you know, it's, it's everything we've been saying because you know a, a trusting relationship with someone that's going to be through with you through the whole period your own midwife builds oxytocin keeps you out of stress you know and all of those yeah. things help you to grow your baby and keep your baby full term and then help you in labor like I I was very lucky with my home births I had the same midwife with my first three babies and I remember I went into labor a little bit early with my first and I remember feeling a bit scared and my midwife walked through the door and I looked at her and I knew her and I trusted her and I just relaxed and everything flowed, you know. So it's, you know, it, we haven't measured it enough, you know. We haven't measured no. the power of um, the social aspects of that, the power of connectedness, the power of relatedness. And, of course, in labor, the power of feeling safe, you know, because oxytocin is about safety as well. Oh, it, it's com completely. And, and I mean, that, that's very much what we talk a lot about at Cumberth is, is what I, I call the mind-body-birth connection and really understanding that, you know, the emotional component of birth is just as enormous as the physical component and, and that safety, that companionship, that, that circle around women and is, is just so essential for them, um, for, for things to flow um, as best as possible emotionally and physically for them to walk out emotionally safe from birth. Um, so it's, it's, there's a whole enormous dimension to birth which has not been addressed um, until recently and even now we're still only just starting to address it. So I think it's really fascinating. Um, but let's talk epidurals because this is, this is a big thing because I, I, um, unfortunately in our culture, uh, there's a lot of women who don't feel that that birth's achievable without an epidural. And what I'm finding is that a lot of women also don't understand the impact that epidurals have and that it's not just a simple pain relief. It's actually quite a, a significant intervention in birth and really changes up uh, a woman's um, system when she is giving birth. So, Sarah, what have you found around epidurals and, and that oxytocin system um, and yeah. how it impacts birth? Yeah, well, I just want to, as you say, just to, to emphasize that every intervention has its place and every intervention Absolutely. can be useful and yeah. life-saving. But really, you know, this conversation is really about risks and benefits, you know, and I think mm -hmm. the woman is best placed to decide on these things given all the time and information mm -hmm. that she requires. So this is kind of, you know, this is information for you to take into account so you can make informed choices. But also Absolutely. you can, you can, you know, you can... Um, 
you can resource yourself. You can find the things that you need that are going to help you if you don't want an epidural to get through labor and birth without an epidural. Do a calm birth course. Have your mm-hmm. own midwife if that's not possible. Have your own doula. Anything that helps you to feel safe in labor is going to reduce your need for intervention. So a yeah. little little plug for one-on-one midwifery care too there. Yeah. Um, so epidurals. So epidurals are brilliant. They're a very effective form of pain relief. And sometimes that yeah. can be just what women need in labor, but they also cause hormonal gaps. So I'm going to take you back to our positive feedback loop of oxytocin and by the way um, if you want to visualize this go to my website sarahbuckley.com look under blogs and then epidurals and you find this little feedback loop that I'm talking about so basically remember oxytocin released from the brain causes strong contractions the strong contractions the sensation of the contractions feeds back to the brain to cause more oxytocin release so it's the sensations that do that so the problem with epidurals is they're so effective at abolishing sensations and because they abolish sensations they cut the feedback loop so basically what happens is the feedback loop slows down and kind of stops really so that the mother's oxytocin levels go down and you can see this i think in those report in those um, blogs also in my hormonal physiology of childbearing report there's some graphs of what happens to oxytocin with epidurals so you know we can measure it that levels go down um and um what that means is that the mother is labor tends to slow down or even stop and therefore we cause this hormonal gap and then we fill the hormonal gap by giving the mother synthetic oxytocin so we come back to that oxytocin synthetic oxytocin and epidural you know um that is so common combination that is so common but basically you know we we can say all these things are happening in the body but what's happening in the mother's brain is also what interests me because remember this positive feedback loop is not just increasing oxytocin in the body but it's also increasing oxytocin in the brain so that as the contractions get stronger the mother has more pain relief the mother has more calm and connection and all these rewarded pleasure centers are getting switched on in preparation for um, meeting her baby you know to reward and motivate her to give the dedicated care etc so if we cut off this um this oxytocin loop um then you know labor slow down or stop the mother is likely to have difficulty pushing her baby out it increases the chance of needing a forceps or a vacuum to help you to push your baby out because you don't have that that ability to get that feedback loop going the ferguson reflex to help you to push your baby out at birth but what is it actually doing for your brain oxytocin this is not something that's been very well studied but if you go back to for example i talked about the studies that show the change in personality that happens after physiological birth that doesn't happen after a pre-labor cesarean well basically it doesn't happen after an epidural too so that's an indication of that 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 this um, oxytocin gap is happening in the brain and by the way it's, it's, it happens that other mammals have given oxytocin to sheep and cows and found that they get that oxytocin gap in the brain and they don't bond with their babies there's a, there's a hormonal gap in relation to bonding with the babies um, so yeah does this happen for women as well well again it's not very well researched and you know it's kind of tricky to do this research because there is such an investment in, in epidurals and with a lot of the researchers with a lot of the literature you know with the anesthesiologists in America who make their bread butter you know by by doing epidurals so it's kind of a politically difficult thing to do but there were some um older studies showing that um the the higher the mother the higher actually i'm just going to go back a step and say what is an epidural so we can understand it so an epidural is an injection into the epidural space which is around the spinal cord it doesn't pierce the coverings or the dura it stays around the spinal cord and when that 
when the drugs go into that space, it basically acts like a dental anesthetic. So if you go to the dentist, you know, to have a dental procedure done, the dentist gets a local anesthetic, injects it into your mouth next to the dental nerve, and that stops the functioning of the dental nerve from sending you the sensations. It blocks the sensations. It causes numbness. It also blocks the motor function. To some extent, you, kind of, you can't use your jaw as much, you use your mouth as much. But that's happening because the anesthetic is injected right next to the nerve. So that's basically what happens with an epidural it's not it's 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 actually a local or what we call regional anesthetic and it only works because the local anesthetic that's in the epidural is injected next to the nerve or where the nerves come through the spinal cord in this epidural space um, so it's a local anesthetic um, usually the same kind of thing your dentist would use bupivacaine but also they put an opioid drug in there like you know morphine pethidine um, fentanyl those kind of drugs usually fentanyl um, because it, they found if they do that they can use a lower amount of local anesthetic and if they use less local anesthetic then there's not so much um, paralysis or motor block because just like in the dentist you know it'll cause numbness and loss of sensation which is what we want but it also stops you from moving to some extent you know you're you're not so sure on your feet I mean there's these walking epidurals but to walk with a walking epidural you need a person either side of you because you're not going to have that same um, motor capacity as someone who doesn't have one so um, it's an epi it's in this epidural space it's causing numbness of the nerves that come in and out of that um, which is what makes it, what makes it such an effective form of pain relief so so the numbness is what's causing the loss, loss of sensation which is what's slowing down our positive feedback loop which is what's reducing the oxytocin in the brain if you get that pathway that i'm talking about then it makes sense that it, the study found that the more the higher the dose of local anesthetic the mother had had the less she wanted to be with her baby after the birth, the more hours she put her baby into the nursery rather than having the baby with her. And mm -hmm. basically my interpretation of that is it's reduced incrementally the, the reward and pleasure center activation she gets with her baby and she's not getting that reward. The baby is not as technically what we call hedonic. It's not such a, mm -hmm. a source of reward and pleasure for her. So that's my concern with the epidurals as much as anything is what's yeah. it doing to the mother's brain? Is it switching down those reward and pleasure centers that make mothering easier because goodness knows mothering is a big job right looking after a small baby or a medium-sized baby or a teenager even you know you need all the help you can get <laughs> so you know if you have an epidural I'm not saying you can't be a good mother but you know mother nature wants you to have this best possible start of you know immediate reward and pleasure of bonding with your baby of seeing your baby as a source of reward and pleasure to you and you know that's what's at risk from my point of view from an oxytocin research point of view with an epidural and again, just reinforcing and covering what you just said that with that study that it was it was kind of time and dose uh, determined in the sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah right? it, was, so, it was, it was. Yeah, and I have to I have to add a um, also I said this is an older study when the doses were higher. So maybe yeah. there's not so much effect these days. But if you go back to our positive feedback loop, basically the more effective the pain relief is the less, the more you're going to slow down that feedback loop. Right. So I would say, I, I would say it's highly likely that modern epidurals have the same effect. And in fact, those personality yeah. studies, did I mention those? So when yeah. women have an epidural, they don't get the, those were modern studies, so they don't get the change in personality. But I know you're going to ask me about hormonal gaps and filling them in. So I'll just start to talk about that because, yeah. you know, there is a hormonal gap there. What can we do to fill it in? Everything we've just said, skin to skin contact, early breastfeeding yeah. um, as, as early as possible and as frequently as possible. Um, but the other thing, 
interesting, the interesting thing with this personality study was they followed those women up. And when women were exclusively breastfeeding by four to six months, they had those personality changes. So they managed, they fill in that hormonal gap themselves by the release of oxytocin and all the other bonding chemicals that happen during breastfeeding. So that's, uh, you know, that's a powerful way of filling in those hormonal gaps, skin to skin and breastfeeding. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's an important thing for us to understand is, is that, you know, we're complex enough to be able to overcome the, these shortfalls, all these gaps, as you talk about in, in labor, we're not sheep and we're not that, that don't have that intelligence to, to work out what we can do. So there's definitely a way forward because as you mentioned, and as we keep saying, um, all of these interventions that we have in birth, um, you know, originally came in for, for a good reason and they are life-saving for some mums and babies and, um, and can be the difference between a positive and a negative birth for women as well. So everything's on the table. It's just about understanding the, the impact and the, as you said, the risk and benefit to everything and and by understanding that then we can work towards how we can make up for any any downfalls or shortfalls that occur so exactly and that's what Mm. this this is about this is not about you know saying don't do this this is about understanding what it is and this is the the extra things that that women and mothers may need to do if if their births go in such a way that they do require a little bit of extra assistance along the way that, yeah. that they can make up for all of these things. But the, and, and it's easy. It's, it's simple, skin to skin, and to, for us to really be promoting breastfeeding as much as possible. Yeah, and just to say something a little bit more about skin to skin is it's not just the hour after birth or the two hours after no. birth or the day of birth, really. Like if you think in evolutionary terms, there's nowhere else for the baby to be except on the mother's body or someone yeah. else's body, right? because mm-hmm. if, you, if you were in the wild like 10,000 years and put your baby down and turned around your baby wouldn't be there when you turned back again right yeah, so you know you, you, your baby's designed to be in your body skin to skin and that's what's going to keep the baby warm and that transfer of heat that we were talking about continues to happen right through that um, mother baby relationship so mm-hmm. you're having a baby on your body skin to skin there was a study that was done um, in the first month of randomizing women to extra skin to skin I think it was four hours a day the first week and two hours a day after that and those mothers had lower depression scores Mm. so you know and that makes sense with oxytocin oxytocin skin to skin um you know skin to skin oxytocin oxytocin rewarded pleasure you know calm and connection you know it feels it's a feel-good hormone so your baby is your medicine to some extent you know the more you can interact with your your baby can breastfeed your baby the better it's going to be for your mental health in fact I was just reading a paper about that like you know better mental health and depressed women or lower depression scores or actually this study was actually about more affectionate touch when the mothers were even depressed mothers had more affectionate touch with their babies when they were breastfeeding so it's a you know it's it's a caretaking system oxytocin and breastfeeding is part of that but if you can't breastfeed you can still do the skin to skin you can still affectionately touch your baby in fact I'd I'd suggest you do more of it you know to fill in that that hormonal gap yeah, it's it's fascinating, Sarah, isn't it? Um, so, but finally, what what was sort of some of your final comments or final suggestions that you have to to women and couples that are listening in, and also caregivers around how we can really support that an oxytocin fueled environment um, for for women and mothers going into birth? What are some of the key key points that you would like women to to take hold of when they're listening? Well, I think one of the things we've kind of alluded to, but I haven't said directly, is that 
the hormones of having a baby are almost identical to the hormones of making a baby. So mm. physiologically, we need to be in our parasympathetic nervous system. We need oxytocin. We need to feel safe, you know. Yeah. So if you want your labor to flow, you know, you want to think about are these circumstances in which I could make a baby because that's the ideal place to have a baby. So, you know, look at your plans and see how much you can adapt them, how much you can help yourself to feel safe in that situation. So obviously being at home and laboring at home, you know, until labor gets, well, the snowball gets so big, it's unstoppable is one thing that I highly recommend, you know, because mm. there's a point in labor in which it becomes not disruptable. You know, the, the, the snowball's mm. too big to, to, to stop, you know, and that's the point at which you move to hospital. And obviously ideal to have your own midwife or your own daughter that can help you at home. So that's a good hint. Um, secondly, if you are going to hospital, you know, how can you modify your environment so that it is you know you feel safe there and it tends to be for modern western women it tends to be dim lighting it tends to be mm -hmm. few people these are cultural things by the way not every culture has that some cultures like don't feel safe unless there's lots of people in the room some people yeah. cultures don't feel safe in the dark right no, so you know right. yeah. whatever it is for you you know and also consider all these things are happening in your limbic system which is the hypothalamus the pituitary it's the it's a more primitive level of the brain so it's not about intellectual safety it's it's not about the idea that you'll be safer in hospital is actually what this primitive sense of safety is so you know and that primitive sense of safety is very connected to the senses so some yep. things and you probably know that I'm sure you could talk about this um, a lot as well but you know um, considering your senses like when you go into a hospital or a different environment it's different smells different sights you know oxytocin is actually connected to the sense of smell so mm. taking familiar smells you know one thing and I've got these hints from midwives by the way is yeah. take your own pillow and bury your yeah. head into the pillow that's a familiar smell. Some people take their partner's T-shirt, bury their yeah. head into the T-shirt, you know, like smell. And then what about senses? You know, can you put an eye mask on? Can you put, you know, can you listen to music that's going to dull the sounds? You know, how can you help yourself to feel safe in that environment that you're in? And as we mentioned before, you know, having caretakers that you feel safe with is really, really important. Unfortunately, in most maternity care systems, including in Australia, we don't automatically provide that for women. You know, we don't yeah. have one-on-one -on -one midwifery care. We don't have birth support people doulas so if, the, if that's not provided for you a part of your there are there are some models of care that do like some mm. hospitals have continuity of care um midwifery group group practice in the hospital system and the public system um so but if that's not available to you then really consider taking a doula to hospital with you who's a supportive birth companion who can be that um be that person that helps you to feel safe in that environment and also by the way will help your partner as well you know mm. some people think i'll just take my partner but the partner's going to be out of their depth unless they work in a hospital <laughs> because they won't, you know, they won't feel comfortable there. So that's not necessarily going to help. So, you know, consider your circumstance, consider your social circumstance as well, you know, and if you can stay at home as long as possible. And um, yeah, and as much as you can, you know, enjoy it because it is one of the days of your life that you'll look back on and remember for the rest of your life, you know, and if you have the opportunity, you know, if you have to pay for these things and when we pay for our home births, right, it's several thousand dollars, but imagine what you pay for a wedding, right? Yeah. It's like the best, the best investment you could ever have is to have that care that you need and have a positive experience of birth. Oh, and just one last thing to say is we're talking about physiology and the benefits of physiology, but actually, you know, if you need an intervention, you know, the things that make women come out feeling happy with their um with their care it's not whether birth was physiological it's did they feel safe 
Yeah. Did they feel supported? Were they treated kindly? Were they involved in the decision making? So Absolutely. those are really important things to look at as well. And um, yeah, just and, and talk to your caregivers, you know, investigate your caregivers. What is your normal birth rate? What is your epidural rate? What is your cesarean rate? You know, sometimes you can get one impression in labor and it can be different at the birth. Look for any red flags and you know, be willing to adapt your plans even, you know, towards the end of pregnancy if you really don't feel comfortable. Because if you don't feel comfortable with that person in pregnancy, you're sure as eggs not going to feel comfortable with them in labor absolutely communication is essential and and coming back to the role of the partner one of the things that we've found in in Cambeth and and something that we're very passionate about is educating them just as much as the women because we because if you do put a partner into a birth space without any education they they do feel really out of control and have no idea what's going on however when they're really well educated and understand how to support their partner which often is mostly about stimulating her senses as you you were saying Sarah um, they can be really quite amazing because you've got your midwives and your obstetricians and doulas who are expert in in supporting women in birth but then you've got partners who are expert in that individual woman and Mm. um, and having his or her input into what is best for that particular woman I think is is really really important and and he or she can can serve beautifully to help create that safe place for her. Um, so, and and I hmm. coming back to the senses. My my thing that I always say is that you can't sense and stress at the same time. So <laughs> it, it's always always come back to your senses, and that usually will will help ground down and, and bring on that beautiful oxytocin. Beautiful, thank uh, you for that. Yeah, and, and my understanding is that's what the evidence says too. That if the partners are educated, then they contribute to a yeah. positive outcome for the mama. And if they're not educated, then it can be harder for them so thank you for providing that beautiful education yeah yeah no that's fine all right well I think we might leave it there Sarah I think we could probably talk all day otherwise (laughs) it's it's such a fascinating subject and and it's a topic that I think is going to continue to be more and more fascinating as we delve more into it and and the work that you're doing um, alongside of Kirsten with your PhDs I'll be really interested to see what your outcomes are when you've finished it and completed it Um, but until now if anyone wants to find out more about Sarah they can go to her website at sarahbuckley.com I think isn't it and um that's right and she's got lots of amazing blogs and articles her books are there her big report on um the hormonal physiology of childbearing is up there the link to go and get that um she's um, got amazing resources there and we look forward to to seeing even more come out as as you progress through your PhD so thank you for joining us Sarah thank you thank you so much Karen it's a pleasure